0: chapter 1, verse 1 of Haggai. Um, This uh, is perhaps convenient coming after the sermons I've done from Micah. Micah takes place before the exile as the word of the Lord comes to Micah to these people and he says, judgment is coming and you can't remove your necks from it and um, God is going to deliver you but this is for sure and um, this judgment is coming on the land. Now, as we look at the first chapter of Haggai, We are um, blessed to be past the turmoil of the exile, and in fact, the people from the exile are starting to come back. To give us a little bit of context, maybe more I'll I'll let you read more context if you want to, but you can read all about this time of history in Chronicles and Ezra. In fact, the end of Chronicles, the end of 2 Chronicles, says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might uh, be fulfilled by Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So while the people of Israel have been in the foreign land, God has fulfilled his promises to them by bringing them back and restoring them in this place, in this land. Um, And he's given them this charge to rebuild his house, that is the temple in in Jerusalem. And so the book of Ezra launches off with the people's obedience to view this. In the first year of Cyrus, um, some of the exiles come back, exiles come back. The first group of exiles come back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, these are kind of the grandchildren of um, the predecessors that would have um, served in, in Israel before everyone was carted off to exile. In fact, Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin, and he's made the governor of this province, even though he is the rightful Davidic heir. Um, but Zerubbabel and Joshua come back with some exiles in Ezra 2. They begin construction of the temple, and they lay the foundation for it in Ezra 3, but they swiftly meet with opposition. Um, You'll remember that when uh, Babylon and, and Assyria exiled people out, they brought foreign people in and populated the land with these foreign people that they captured from all over the world. And so uh, a lot of people settled in uh, Samaria, which is why the Jews grew to hate Samaritans, because these foreigners came in, and the few Jews who were left intermarried with them, and it was just a a polluted people, polluted by race, polluted by idols and their worship and their culture that they brought in from all these different places. Um, So as these exiles under Zerubbabel, as they're beginning to rebuild the temple, they lay the foundation, but in Ezra 4 they meet opposition from the Samaritans, these foreigners that are living in the land. And they come down and they realize, hey, we don't want Israel to rebuild its strength. We don't want them to um, rebuild and have the, the house of their God here. So we're going to write a letter to the king. And they do. Um, so they write a letter to Artaxerxes and they say, hey, the Jews are stiff-necked people. They're hard-headed people. You really don't want them to thrive. And he's like, oh, Okay, I really don't want them to thrive. And so he shuts it down from a letter from the king in Ezra 4. And he says, there shall be no building of the house. Um, But the story continues in Ezra 5 and 6. We see how uh, appeal is written to Darius, a king after Artaxerxes. And Darius searches the archives. And he finds this Cyrus edict that I read to you in in 2 Chronicles 36. And Darius says, hey, this was written, and so let no one oppose the building of this house. If anybody wants to go, let him go. Um, But we're right in the middle of this time. My guess is that this appeal to Darius and the confirmation of, hey, leave these people alone and let them build the house hasn't happened yet. And so it's for these hardships that the people say in uh, Haggai 1 verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. On the outside, we can uh, commiserate. We can, we can feel for these people and why they say that the time has not yet come, understanding a little bit of the context and the pressure of what's going on. They say, hey, you know, this isn't a convenient time. We're getting opposition from these people groups. And we are, in fact, outnumbered as the new returnees to this land. Um, and the king of all the world at the time uh, has shut down the building project and said, do not build. Um, It could be easy for us to understand why they make this conclusion that it is not yet the time to rebuild the house of the Lord, but this is precisely why in verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai, and it comes with this message in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts: These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's kind of odd how it's structured because that's the only word, right? We have another word of the Lord that comes in verse three, but this first word of the Lord is just, "These people say that the time has not yet come." And of course, we um, we observe that the meaning is very clear that God does not agree with this. This is not right. In fact, looking over the context of the Old Testament and these scriptures that I've already mentioned and read, God had made it clear that this was to happen. Um, Cyrus said, the Lord of heaven has told me to go and do this. And yet with some opposition, it is easy to come up with excuses why we should not obey. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai and to his people because of this excuse in verse 2 and their delayed obedience as I think about us, I'm reminded of James 4.17. To him who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin. Almost always, doing the right thing comes at a cost to us, uh, a cost of convenience, a cost of um, resources. But doing the right thing is always doing the right thing. It's, it's rarely easy to do the right thing, and it usually does not come at a convenient time to your schedule, right? You feel the Lord prod you, hey, go talk to this person, hey, go, go up to this person, and we say, mm, if this had come like Tuesday of next week, it would have been a great time, but today I'm slammed, God, and so I can't, I can't do it today. As a result of uh, our hardness of heart, We've become really skilled at procrastinating, or wasting time, or justifying reasons, searching for the right time to obey. When obedience is not a matter of the right time, but of right now, what are you going to do? When the word of the Lord comes to you right now, will you choose to obey? Second Corinthians 6 says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation, and so we need to take urgency um, to our obedience, uh, to, to the obedience of our heart. It's an urgent matter, especially because it won't come at an easy time, and if we wait for it to, it's just never going to come at an easy time. For us, it can be all too easy to say with Israel, the time has not yet come for me to obey the Lord. We know what we should be doing for the Lord, but obedience now comes at a price that you and I are often unwilling to pay. So with this introduction, this word of the Lord comes at this time to these people, to Zerubbabel, um, the rightful Davidic heir, to uh, Joshua, the grandson of the guy who was the high priest, um, and to the people, and God's message is this is not right. And so we come to verse 3 when the word of the Lord is repeated, verses 3 through Six. the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Well, this word of the Lord is repeated in verse 3. It comes in the form of a question of verse 4, a rhetorical question. Um, Is this a time for you to dwell in your houses while my house lies in ruins? The answer is no, it is not. You know what you should be doing, uh, and this is not what you should be doing. This uh, this rhetorical question kind of echoes to me with the zeal that David had for God's house. When David said in 2 Samuel 7, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. What's wrong with this picture? Um, And apparently this is the zeal uh, for obeying and for the Lord's glory and honor that is lacking in the people. The people are too preoccupied over their own houses to care that the temple still lies in ruins. A few other context, contextual things to kind of give us a reason why. You know They've come back from exile. They've come back to this land. There's political opposition, um, and it's, it's a time of unrest. Uh, Egypt is revolting against Babylon, and so there's mar- armies marching through the land. Um, it's not a time we see of plenty. It's a time of economic uh, distress. The, The harvest was not good. They don't have a lot of money, and they don't have a lot of food. And so these people who are now returnees to this land are worried about their safety and the safety of their houses, of their food, of their children. They don't have a lot. They're struggling to get by. So we would understand why they might be really concerned about their own houses, about their own families. But God's question still comes clear. Is this a time for you to be worried about your houses while my house lies in ruins? And again, the assumed answer is still no. So, in verse 5, God calls them to consider their ways. The Hebrew phrase is a little bit more literal, set your heart upon your path. It's an exhortation that calls for wisdom and introspection as we pause and look at our life and look at the way we are living, and examine, is this really the best way um, for me to be living right now? Is this the best way that brings me blessing and and the pleasure of my father, or am I in fact in the wrong? As a father myself, I've come to view this as a, a merciful act on God's part. When God approaches us in our weakness and calls us to think, hey, just think about what you're doing for a second. We see it throughout scripture. In Cain, um, God approaches Cain and says, Hey, do you do well to be angry? Sin is at the door, but you must um, rule over it, right? or, or else it will rule over you. Um, God is there for us. We can uh, find help in time of need because He's a great high priest. He understands what it's like to be tempted. And often He comes to us in these moments, like uh, Jonah as well. Do you do well to be angry? Is this the right thing? For you to be doing right now. Um, with my children, sometimes I have these kinds of moments with them where I know that they're doing something they're not. Usually I hear it and the screams and the whining and the, you know, that's going on in the other room. So I walk into the room and I say, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? And they both look at me with their big eyes like, uh-oh, daddy's here. And they, I, I say, you know, is this the right thing for you to do? to be whacking your brother, or to be screaming at this, or do we just take things out of people's hands? And they look at me with their big eyes, and they're like, no. <laughs> they know what is the right thing to do, but it's kind of a, a God-like thing that I get to emulate in being a father and saying, hey, this is not the right way for you to live. And this is, and God leads us back. And so I see this verse as, as God says, consider your ways. It's, it's tough. But it is also extremely loving as God, as a father, comes to us. And he says, so how is this working out for you? Are you really trusting me? Are you really following me right now? This is the better way. Come, turn, trust in me, follow me. So God says to them, consider your ways. How is this working out for you? Verse 6, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, and no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. There's these five pairs that God calls us to consider. Sowing much, harvesting little, eating, but you never have enough. Just all of these things kind of reminds me of vanity of vanities. You know, we're striving, and we're chasing after the wind, and we're working hard, and we love our families, and we want safety, and we want to have food to provide, but we just can't. It is incredibly frustrating to work, and to work hard, and to have little to no yield from your labors. Not many of us are farmers these days, so that specific frustration may be lost on us. But to plant a whole harvest, a whole field, and then to have it lost, and that was going to be the food that kept you through the winter, that's, that's frustrating. And it's frustrating to trust in God when, when the things that we look to for stability are gone and they're taken out of our hands. But God is right there. He's walking with us through the process, and he knows. He says, I have seen you so much, and you're harvesting little. How is this working out for you? Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this kind of despair in your life when you've been working, 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 and you see little to no fruit, from your work, from your labor. Perhaps um, you are seeking after God, but he feels far away. Perhaps the blessings in your life seem to be distant. Um, you know, the, the Israelites are, are aware of the Persian armies marching through the land, of the, the wear and tear of the land that that brings, of the imported locals that are opposing them. Um, but... What's really at the heart of all this is simply their continued disobedience to God's command. And their disobedience has enacted the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 30, when God said, See, I have set before you today the way of life and the way of death, the way of good and the way of evil. If you obey the commandments, there is a blessing. But if your heart turns away, you shall surely perish and not live long in the land. The, the land will not produce for you its fruits. It will withhold the dew and, and the rain, and, and this will happen as a result of your sin. And so these things are taking place, and God says, hey, how is this working out for you? I have to put in a little bit of a disclaimer here because when we talk about um, the, the blessing and the curse and the covenant of Deuteronomy, we look to today, and we have a lot of false teaching and false gospels today, specifically the prosperity gospel that would have us take the, that concept and really skew it, right? So God is not saying that if you obey, therefore I am required, I will um, for sure give you X amount of money if you sow your faith seed, right? Um, and he's also saying that if you forgot to read your Bible this morning, you will get in a car wreck later today. It's not so cut and dry, this equals that, Um but uh, there is some truth still for us to these principles, right? For our children, when they, when they disobey, there are consequences. When they obey, there's, there's blessing. And the result of our sin brings consequences that we can't control, even that passes through generations. When fathers neglect their duties and um, uh, it impacts their children and their children's children, it just that's the effects of sin. And the... The message is clear that your actions are not right, and it's resulting in unfavorable outcomes that you're experiencing right now. But God as a father comes to you and he says, consider your ways. Is this the right thing for you to be doing? Or in fact, is this the wrong path? Verse 7, God repeats the command to consider your ways. If, you, if you're not uncomfortable yet. We have another round. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. We have here, again, the, the exhortation to consider, but instead of a, a negative emphasis of, hey, this isn't working out for you, we have the positive emphasis of this is what you're supposed to be doing. Consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. Really, this is the end of the sermon. This is the point of the passage. God wants his people to build his house. Um, But there's more. He he wants them to build his house for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, he wants them to build the house not for not for the uh, reestablishment of economic security, not for the blessing of crops that continue, not for their safety in the land. He wants them to obey for two reasons, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. This is really at the heart of our obedience. We obey not for us, but to bring God glory because we love him so that he may be pleased with us, that we may bring him pleasure. I think um, just to give us another illustration about this, um, it's helpful for us to pause in the midst of our lives and think about our lives to examine ourselves. One of the things that I've learned in my time at this church is just the ability to take a step back from a busy schedule and to look at my week, look at my month, and... Uh, evaluate, how do I use my time? Um, There's different books on this, different names for the process. I I call it balcony time, but it's essentially, we don't have a balcony in this church, but it's essentially if you were to stop doing what you're doing at the pew level and climb up into the balcony and look down on your life and assess, is there a way that I can improve how I'm living my life to be more productive or, or more faithful or to produce the goals that I want? Um, Do I need to change my my bedtime? What time I get up? Do I need to go running more my disciplines? It's balcony time. You you take a break to look down in your life and to examine ourselves. And I think that's a, a discipline that is often lacking, that we fall short of in the Christian life, to take moments of quiet reflection, maybe even personal retreats, to really search our hearts. I wonder if we take Regular planned times to pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because if there is, I want to confess it, and I want to repent it and repent of it, and I want to make sure that I'm walking in holiness and in righteousness. Do we spend time searching our hearts for sin? crying out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Show me how. Show me where. That's a prayer that God will answer. If you cry out to the Lord, God, show me my sin so that I may repent of it, God will. And here he is faithful to do that well. Consider your ways. This is not working out for you. Consider your ways. This is what you should be doing. And that's that's a, a blessing for us. God's call to action for the people is simple. Build the house um, for God's glory and for his pleasure. Incidentally, those are also the purposes of the temple. God's temple was the place in which he was pleasured. His his, uh, righteousness was satisfied with the atonement for sin, um, and it was the place where his glory dwelt um, with his people where his name was caused to dwell there in Jerusalem because he is the God who lives with us, among us. Um, And so they're called to build this house for those reasons. Um, And uh, verse nine tells us um, a little bit more about God's action in this whole process. It's a little bit intriguing that the economic suffering, that the consequences for sin, it's more than just the consequences of your sin that has an impact in your life. These things have been coming at the loving hand, by the loving hand of our Father himself. God is a Father who loves his children, and he disciplines them. He disciplines those he loves. But it could still be really irritating for us to hear these words. Verse 9, You looked for much, behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. I can't imagine how frustrating it would, it would be for me to work and work and work and, and then for God to say, hey, you're working really hard, but I'm frustrating your plans. Um, I'm frustrating your labors. To get your attention lovingly to bring you back into obedience. I think it's worth our considering and asking ourselves, do you feel frustrated in your life? Do you feel like the labors of your hands are coming to nothing? I don't wanna you know, over-spiritualize this or speak too bluntly, but I think it's worth ourselves asking. Is God doing this in your life to get you to look at your sin and to repent of it? Because this is how God works. Verse nine, he says, "You know, I, I blew it away. We might be frustrated with that, but he tells us why. Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. I don't want to pound us too hard, but I feel the spirit with these with these words. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of preaching to point home to you ways that perhaps you busy yourself with your house instead of looking to the house of the Lord. Obviously this isn't a physical house. We are not called to build a physical house. We have a, a beautiful church building that God has blessed us with. Um, God is calling us to other things. Um, but Uh, We are called to obey, and I think it's far too easy for me to pursue my own life, my own kingdom, my own agenda, and not the agenda of my king, who would have me live for him and not for me. In what ways do we busy ourselves with our own lives, our own houses, maybe literally, instead of doing the work that God has given us to do? If we sit down to consider our ways, would an honest search of our hearts reveal that we really seek the kingdom of God first, like Jesus says in Matthew 6, or are there other things that we seek first? Verses 10 and 11 remind us that we should not be surprised when we face um, unfavorable consequences of our sin, and when we find our labors frustrated. God is perfectly sovereign, and seeking after our own kingdoms is little more than striving against his. The moment in which I seek after my kingdom, I'm rebelling and striving against the kingdom of God. We must guard against this, and we must watch for it in our hearts, um, and also uh, we need to guard against the prosperity gospel. I'm not trying to um, lead us astray in that. This isn't a A legalistic black and white thing, but I think it is something we need to look in our hearts and ask ourselves, am I living, am I ordering my life about my business or about the sake of his name, his glory, and his pleasure so that he can be satisfied in me and, as John Piper would say, so I can be satisfied in him as well. Um, as we move towards kind of an application of these things, I've said before, we're not called to build a physical house. Um, these people are called to build God's temple, and we see that they do. They hear the word of the Lord, and they obey. They start the construction of the house. Uh, we are not, but I think there are some cool things here that we can take away. God calls us to build his house In other ways, in spiritual ways, in 1 Peter chapter 2, God calls us living stones that are being built up into his house. The text says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, he is the living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light in our gospel proclamations in our living as the gospel community of God. We proclaim his word, and when we are faithful to go and make disciples of all nations, we build his house. We proclaim this message. We don't have to go up into the hills to bring wood to bring God's house, because the wood for God's house is all over this city. But you have to go And get wood and build the house that I may be glorified in it. It is for us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that He has commanded us. We can hear these words to Jesus that Jesus says to us when He says, just like He says down in um, verse 13, that the word of the Lord comes, I am with you. Jesus says to us, Behold. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He calls us to hear his words and to do them, but he comforts us. He comforts us with the knowledge that he is right here with us, helping us to obey. Verse 12, kind of the conclusion. The the word of the Lord comes, is delivered, and this is the response And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, their, their God, the Lord of hosts, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So, from the time stamp, we, we recognize that there's a little bit of de- a delay, maybe. There was some planning that happened as they began to gather materials to look at the lands to prepare themselves for the construction process from the first day of the month to the 24th day of the month. But the point is very clear. They heard God's word and they obeyed. They took action. Verse 12 says the people obeyed God. More than that, they feared him. They heard his words and they feared his words enough to obey him. They didn't save it for later. They didn't wait for a right now moment. Instead, they realized how they have been uh, um, waiting and, and not delaying their obedience, and they have acted with obedience and repentance. In verse 13, God speaks in response to their obedience with comfort and love and affirmation. He says, I am with you. In our work that God has called us to do, we carry that same hope, that same strength, that same courage that gives us action in our obedience. It doesn't come at an easy time. It comes at a cost to you, to obey. But God is with you, to bless you, to work with you. When the Lord of hosts is with you to enable you to obey, we really don't have that many more excuses that stand up to God's call. To obey. More than that, they obeyed. They were comforted by God in his presence. And in verse 14, God himself stirs up their hearts so that they can continue to obey. The Lord stirred up the spirit of these people, of Zerubbabel, of uh, Joshua, of the people, so that they came and they worked on the house. The Lord stirs up our hearts too. If we seek him, if we ask him, If we pray, Lord, convict me of my sins, show me what I need to repent of, and stir up my heart that I may obey. May the same things be said about us as we, uh, as Calvary Community Church, seek to be a light on the hill, seek to build his house, and seek to do so even today on the 27th day of the 11th month in the 2022nd year of our Lord, the King. Let's pray. Father, it can be tough to have your word, which is living and active and sharp, pierce our hearts. It can be tougher still to hang on to that conviction and to actually take action on it. We are skilled at the ways that we hear your word and we push it down. We suppress the truth. We come up with reasons why we shouldn't obey right now and certainly when it's inconvenient or difficult for us to do. But Father, we pray that your word would pierce us and encourage us and comfort us as as we as individuals and as a church seek to be the people of God who do your word. We're not just hearers of your word, Lord, but we want to do your word. And we want to be the people that are busy about the work that you've given us to do. We want to be a people who are zealous for good works, zealous for your name, zealous for the gospel in our communities. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would not leave us alone, that you would strengthen us and empower us with your presence so that we may proclaim your word, and see your house built as people come to the knowledge of you and grow and are established in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.